Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I'm your host, Marsha Brownlee. The Artemis community understands that as hunters and anglers, we have a responsibility to actively engage in the conservation of our lands, waters, and wildlife. With that in mind, each year, the Artemis Podcast delves into a special series focusing on a specific conservation issue. Our goal is to dig into the complexity, deepen our understanding, and help spur conversation. This year, our series is about climate change. If we all take a minute to think about our time in the woods and on the water, if we take time to think about our experience, we can't deny that we are seeing drastic changes. Changes in temperature, changes in water levels, changes in habitat quality, and changes in the number and distribution of game. We are seeing changes in our hunting and fishing seasons, and it's impacting us and our communities. In this series, we talk to scientists, conservationists, and leaders from across the country and ask them questions related to climate change to deepen our understanding of what's happening, what's being done about it, and where we can contribute. We're looking forward to digging in, and we thank you for joining us for the Artemis Climate Series. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Artemis Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us again for another episode of the Artemis Climate Series. Our co-host today is Ashley Chance and her sidekick, Charlie. Hi, Ashley. Hi, Charlie. Hello, everyone. Yeah. How are you doing? We're good. I got a... I got a shot in the arm this morning, so that's starting to take effect, but otherwise, we're doing great. We're fresh off of the Tennessee deer camp, which is amazing, Um, and yeah, so we're happy. I'm going to introduce our guest, but then I would love to circle back and hear more about the Tennessee deer camp. Absolutely. Our guest today is also named Ashley, Ashley Peters from the Rough Grass Society. Hi, Ashley. Hello. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, And to our listeners, just so we're clear, I'm probably going to refer to our guest as Ashley and our co-host as Chance. (laughs) So if you hear me (laughs) hollering out for somebody named Chance, it's Ashley Chance. Um, Chance, let's circle back and hear about Tennessee Deer Camp. Yeah, well, um, if all goes well, there's going to be an entire podcast episode on the Deer Camp. So Stay tuned for that. Uh, But it was just the most wonderful time. It was a really challenging hunt. And I don't know, it was just amazing. Pretty much everybody at the camp didn't know each other beforehand, or at least most people didn't. And after just a couple days in the woods, I feel like we're friends forever. So (laughs) I love how hunt camp has has the ability to do that. Right. Yeah. It's very cool. Um, well, I look forward to hearing the podcast uh, that on this camp specifically, because uh, you took Charlie too, right? Charlie went with you? Yes, Charlie was there, and nobody, well, yeah, you can wait, you can wait to hear okay. the rest. She a little was teaser, <laughs> a little teaser there for us all. Um, Ashley, thank you so much for joining us for today's conversation. I'm really excited to talk with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm I'm really excited to get into this discussion. Um, these are definitely some of my favorite things to talk about. Fantastic. Um, so kick us off by telling us where you're calling from. Yeah, I am calling in from Maple Grove, Minnesota. Um, and I've been in Minnesota for about 10 years on and off. Um, I actually grew up in Iowa about three hours south of here. Um, so I'm definitely an upper Midwest person. Um, but I have also spent time in Alaska and Louisiana, um, for jobs that I've had in the past. But right now I'm based out of Minnesota for the Rough Grass Society and American Woodcock Society. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about who you are? Yeah, sure. 
Um, so I oversee Rough Grouse Society and American Woodcock Society's national communications and marketing efforts, um, as well as our national membership engagement program. Um, and if folks want to see kind of day to day what my adventures are and what I'm up to, um, they can find me on Instagram as Grouse Lady. Mm, nice. Yeah. Um, and really, I've my career has been built on natural resources communications. Um, I got my start in Alaska doing some trail building, working with various management agencies like the Forest Service, Bureau of Land Management, whatnot. Um, and then I spent some time in northern Minnesota in the Boundary Waters and Superior National Forest doing work up there as well. And then kind of transitioned <laughs> from the field back into the office. Um, I have a degree in communications. And so once I got that field experience, I was really interested in, in making sure that we were getting communications out about what's happening on the ground with natural resources and what we can do um, to conserve our wild places. Nice. Um, what's your background as a hunter? So I actually just started hunting about five years ago in 2016. Um, so I grew up more as like camping and hiking and backpacking. Um, and then about five years ago, I started getting into hunting because Minnesota actually has a really great hunter recruitment uh, program and uh, kind of system set up. And so I went to a recruitment retention and reactivation conference that we had here. And um, the commissioner of the DNR at the time was a friend of mine, and he introduced me to a couple women who hunt. And then we just started hunting together. And now every year we go and we do kind of a grouse camp. Um, we call it Grousemas, which is like <laughs> Christmas uh, for, <laughs> for grouse hunters. I love it. Um, yeah. And so that's really, uh, that's how I got into it was through bird hunting about five years ago. Um, and it has been kind of a wild ride. Like, I don't think I would have expected myself to be a hunter if you would have asked me when I was in college. Um, but I really, really love it. And it's become, it's certainly become part of my identity. Mm -hmm. Tell us about grouse miss. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it's so fun. I mean, it's really like, you know, the way that people talk about deer camp, it's very similar. Um, I think one of the key differences, though, is that um, there is zero expectation that anybody will get a grouse because yeah. um, usually the beginning of the season is about the worst time to try to get grouse. There's there's no snow on the ground to try to track them. The leaves are still up on the trees. Sometimes it's still really hot out. Um, you still got a fair number of ticks <laughs> out mm. in the woods. Um, and so it's uh, being in the woods themselves may not always be the most fun experience, but overall, um, we really just block off that time. And we know that that week is dedicated for getting together, um, you know, kind of brushing off the dust of, you know, the off season and getting out there and really just enjoying each other's company. Um, and a lot of times, even if we don't have grouse or woodcock um, to make wild game dishes, we'll bring venison or quail or other wild game. And so it's really just kind of a celebration of being grouse hunters and getting together and enjoying each other's company. I love that. I, I've become, so I'm uh, similar to you. I started hunting as an adult. And so it's been, um, I can't even remember how many years, but maybe six, seven, something like that. 
Yeah, the, sure. The tradition of hunt camp and the people that you build relationships with, like, uh, I think when I started out, I was more a fan of no, I'm I'm just gonna you know go out as often as I can um, on the weekends or after work or just kind of incorporate it into my lifestyle in that way, um, right. which I still sure. try to do as much as I can, but setting aside the time for a camp with a community of people that becomes kind of a tradition has really become so special to me. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm starting to shift more towards that model of, of hunting because like you said, it's just like, I mean, it's dusting off um, from the off season, but it's also just kind of dusting yourself off from day to day life. Um, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it is really rejuvenating and like, we make a point to laugh as much as possible. And that's part of the thing, like I said, is not setting expectations really high that anybody has to shoot a bird, um, that it's really more about being with the dogs and being with each other and um, just really appreciating the privilege that we have to go out and hunt. Um, so I, I totally relate to that. So do you go glinting, <laughs> which is like glamping, <laughs> but with hunting? <laughs> I would yeah I mean we occasionally get a cabin and so we'll have a, a cabin um that's kind of serves as our grouse camp um we did that this year and it is it's really nice to be able to go back and take a hot shower and yep. um, cook over a stove and so um I don't know if it's particularly <laughs> glamorous but it's um we we did camp the first couple of years um, but we've, we've kind of switched off and on. So, yeah. you know, we just make the most of it either way. Glamour is relative. I'll say that. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> Glamour is relative. I, we could have a real fun conversation about that. Uh, <laughs> I feel like that's a rabbit hole. Um, can you tell us a story of, uh, one of your favorite memories from in the field? Uh, in the field in general, or for are you looking for grousemas stories? Um, I think in the field in general. Okay, sure. Um, well, I actually have a great story from this past weekend. Um, I was up on the north shore of Lake Superior with a couple friends um, grouse oh, hunting. Such a magical and place. Yeah, it it's every year when I get up there, I'm like, why don't I do this more often? It's about a three hour drive from the Twin Cities. So, um, but it's always just really like, I love the habitat up there. And, you know, obviously it's a scenic drive. You're driving past Lake Superior, most of the drive up. Um, and so we, we were out hunting and um, we were in a line kind of looking for this bird and we knew they were close by because the dogs had been indicating that there were grouse nearby and they had pointed a few times but it was really windy and so when it's windy out you really have to rely on sight more than listening for grouse flushing um for folks who aren't familiar when you're grouse hunting um we tend to count things in flushes um because it's not very common actually to see grouse in front of you especially depending on where you are in the country um and so we're it was very hard this day to listen for grouse flushes and we're walking along and i kind of looked down the line so um there was one person next to me and then one person next to that person and i looked down the line to make sure i knew where they were and 
saw something on the ground and I look over and next to me, walking in line with us in the same direction, was a grouse. So <laughs> for for folks who've so... never seen one, it's it's a funny sight because they look like wild woodland chickens with a little crest on top. Um, and so <laughs> this little brown mottled bird is just walking in between me and the next person and kind of almost looks like, eh, what are we doing? What are we looking for? And I was like, oh my God. And so I pointed, I was like, there's a bird. And as soon as I said that, I think it registered for the grouse that in fact, he was the thing we were looking for. And he kind of hunched down and was like, oh, oh no. <laughs> Oh um, and so I, um, I ended up walking towards it and getting it to flush and then taking a shot. Um, of course I missed <laughs> because it was a gimme. So, um, but that honestly, that's probably one of my favorite recent memories because it, how often <laughs> that's really funny. grouse just walking right next to you. <laughs> just hop right in line. Oh, that's hysterical. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I can imagine like his thought process. He's like, oh, oh shit. <laughs> I, I'm not kidding you. When I looked over, it was walking right in line with us and like, didn't seem to be startled at all. It was just like, Oh, we're all going for a walk. It was, <laughs> um, one of the people I was hunting with, she was like, it's so strange because I don't know if it's cause it's so windy or, or what, but the grouse that day were, um, were behaving more like planted pheasants than they were wild grouse which is very strange um that's such a departure especially for the upper midwest uh for for those birds to act that way that's really funny yeah more more experiences like that like call them to you (laughs) (laughs) i mean it is really cool just to see them out there too like Um, I love going out in the spring and camping and there are certain areas in Minnesota where you can go and camp and you just hear a ton of birds in the area drumming in the spring. So grouse will do this mating display where they get on a log and um, essentially they create um, a vacuum with their wings and they they flap them really quick by their sides um, and it makes a sound you know, a lot of people have different ways of describing it. it might sound like a motorcycle starting up or a helicopter or an ATV. And um, it's just this really bassy drumming sound. And it's really cool to go um, listen to that and see if you can find grouse in the spring as well. Um, but, you know, that's more on the birding side of things than hunting. But, um, it, you know, it's all a really cool way to experience the woods. Preseason scouting. Yeah, yeah, certainly. <laughs> uh, I remember when I first, um, I guess, started to get to know the woods better, um, which again happened a little bit more into my adulthood, and started hearing that sound. I was confused for a good two years about what that sound was, <laughs> because you're right, it sounds like a distant motorcycle starting. Um, but when a motorcycle yes. starts like, you know, five or six times on a hike, you're like, what the heck are they doing? <laughs> Somebody else strange following you in the woods. Yeah. <laughs> There's actually accounts of when, um, European settlers first came to the United States, uh, accounts of them trying to figure out forever what this strange ghostly heartbeat was mm-hmm. in the woods. Um, and I, I always like to think about that cause it, it really is um, 
you know, there are a few folks who are quoted as calling grouse uh, the heartbeat of the woods. Um, but yeah, it's <laughs> it's definitely a unique experience. Yeah. Very cool. Um, and the, yeah, the springtime, um, now that I know more about the grouse and, and kind of know what to he- listen for and look out for, this spring when I was bear hunting, um, I, re- I came across a couple that were doing their display and we had the privilege of just sitting there and watching. Oh, uh, nice. So cool. so cool. That is amazing. Yeah. Where were Idaho. you? Like generally? Idaho. Idaho. Nice. Oh, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. It was really cool. They're fun. They're funny and fun and magical and interesting. Yes, I agree. They're romantic and silly at the same time. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> Excellent. So uh, sticking with the rough grouse, can you give us some background on the rough grass society and the work that you do there? Yeah. Um, So the rough grouse society and American woodcock society joined forces about five years ago. Um, The rough grouse society is actually 60 years old. Um, It was founded in 1961. um, And we have a, um, over a hundred chapters across the U S and, um, you know, our operating budget is around like 7 million. So we're small, but mighty. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and RGS is really focused on mostly like the Eastern half of the United States. Um, although we do have members who live throughout the Northern parts of the West and Alaska and Canada. Um, and so, you know, we're made up of a lot of folks who, who really enjoy grouse and woodcock hunting. Um, But our work benefits a wide range of species because grouse generally serve as a bellwether for how healthy a forest is. So if your forest ecosystem is doing well in areas where grouse are historically present, um, then, you know, that those grouse tend to indicate a healthy forest. I think that's so cool. And I really do appreciate, um, you know, I think so much of the amazing conservation work that the sporting community does is is grounded in species right like there's the rocky mountain elk foundation and there's ducks unlimited and the muley foundation um, and all of these organizations that do really fantastic work and i think we as a community are really starting to um uh emphasize more throughout the work we do that whole habitat perspective and focusing on those bellwether species and the the quality of the habitat um, as as the real mode of change. And so I appreciate sure. organizations like the Rough Grouse Society that um, that help us start so much earlier on the systems thinking scale. Yeah, sure, right. Uh, when you focus on species, especially bellwether type species, um, you really can look at that whole ecosystem and understand how it's doing. Um, you know, and the work that I do specifically is very focused on the effectiveness of our communications and building connections with partners, um, and within the conservation community. Um, I work closely with our chapters and members to support the forest wildlife work. Um, one of my favorite, um, pieces, my favorite article that's been written is titled, um, conservation is behavior. Um, and so I think it's really important for us as conservationists to remember that often, 
um, the the actions that we are taking are some of the most important pieces um, and influencing each other to take positive actions for conservation. So um, that's a huge part of my job. That's amazing. That's uh, we should um, go on for hours about that at another time <laughs> because that's a huge part of my job as well and also a part of my job that I really enjoy. Um, and I yeah. think that's the part, you know, when we're talking to people who care deeply about conservation issues and like, that's the part that we can incorporate into our lifestyle. Um, sure. Yeah. And you yeah. have a background in education. Is that right? It is right. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. A background and a deep seated love <laughs> for education. Yes. At all age <laughs> we levels. Need, we need yeah. many educators in this field. So I'm, I'm grateful for the work that you do. Thank you. Uh, I'm curious to hear more about the the article you mentioned and, and specifically what those conservation habits look like when it comes to rough grouse habitat. Yeah, well, and I guess I'll start by kind of setting the stage in terms of what we're facing. Um, you know, one of our main goals at the Rough Grouse Society is to expedite expedite the forest conservation work that needs to be done at a landscape scale uh, to give grouse and woodcock a fighting chance. Um, we've really seen their populations decline steadily over the last 30 to 40 years. Um, and so despite birds like rough grouse being one of the hardiest birds in the woods, um, right now rough grouse are listed as a species of greatest conservation need in 19 states and American woodcock are listed in 29 states. Um, and really the reason for that is a decline in diverse, healthy forests. Um, and so one of the biggest things that, you know, thinking about habits that people can adopt um, is just really pushing yourself to educate yourself on the latest science. Um, I have found Twitter actually be quite um a good source <laughs> for getting the cliff notes of new and interesting science that comes out. And so um, as sportswomen, I think it's really important for us to be informed, not just on the species that we're hunting, um, but also to really understand what are the habitat impacts, um, what's the science behind what's going on with the habitat. And um, you don't have to be, you know, in academia or, you know, doing deep studies to see some of the basics of what's happening with some of our wildlife species. Um, so it's really about, you know, educating yourself and other conservationists and trying to stay current on how you can help um, improve habitat for wildlife. Can you walk us through the that a little bit and kind of, um, sure. I guess, first talk about what rough grouse habitat is and then um, and then some of the biggest conservation issues that it's facing? Yes. Yeah. Um, so if I were to describe a healthy forest, I would say that it consists of a variety of age classes and species. It really, um, what it does is it makes forests better able to withstand various threats. Um, so for example, threats include diseases, pests, um, invasive species, pathogens, even extreme weather events, uh, to name a few. And so you might hear about things like oak wilts or gypsy moths, emerald ash borer, buckthorn, um, and you might learn about there being changes to precip like precipitation or inclement weather. 
And all of those things are incredible challenges that our forests face. Um, and there's kind of limited options for how to address those threats. But overall, if we've got forest landscapes that are healthy, um, the effects of those threats will be less devastating. Um, and so the forests and wildlife, uh, the forests and the wildlife that rely on um, on these areas um, can really recover more quickly, if that makes sense. Um, so I guess to sum that up, really when we say healthy habitat, we're talking about resilient forests that can sustain wildlife. It's so interesting in the conversations that we're having over this climate podcast series, I think a recurring theme or pattern that has come to light is, is the exacerbation of, it, of conservation issues that that mm. comes from client change, but I think a right. lot of like the the issues that our um, lands, waters, and wildlife are facing are incredibly complex and multifaceted, and some of those are human caused. Like if we're talking about development or forest management practices, um, and some of them start with climate change. If we're talking about you know increased invasive bugs um, because of warmer winters or things like that, but it's all exacerbated by the effects of of climate change and one of the key solutions is habitat health and resiliency right yeah and i mean i think um you know i think one of the things that's a challenge is that historically in the u.s um at least the last within the last 150 years um, there was a practice of over-harvesting when it came to our forests. And so especially in the eastern United States, you kind of see um, very single-aged forests because there was a period of time where there was some over-harvesting happening and we lost so much habitat. And now that the forests have grown back, um, a lot of them have grown back in a very single-aged manner. Um, and that's a really big problem for wildlife because wildlife rely on forests that have a good diversity. So old growth, older forests, uh, middle-aged and, and younger forests. Um, and what we're seeing is that we just have massive amounts of forests that um, are no longer experiencing um, natural disturbances um, because of humans moving in to the landscape and, you know, especially after European settlement, um, people suppressing things like wildfires. Um, and so the forest diversity is not there in the way that it has been um, for centuries before European settlers came. And I'm curious, I'm going to ask a a uh, question that I'm not sure what the answer is, <laughs> which is why I'm asking the question. <laughs> sure. Right. Um, uh, so I guess correcting that issue uh, yeah. and getting a forest back to a age diverse and um, uh, flora diverse environment feels really complex and long term. Mm, yeah. What does that look like in practice? That's a great question. Um, so the way that we think about it is, you know, there, especially, like I said, we work a lot in the eastern half of the United States. And when you compare the landscapes in the eastern half of the U.S. and the western half, the eastern half of the United States is much more um 
private lands um, and uh, kind of broken up different public lands. So you might have a chunk that's all public land, but it might be um, to some degree county, to some degree state, and to some degree federal, right? And so um, a, a big part of getting our forests back to essentially an equilibrium that's healthy for them and healthy for the wildlife is about collaboration. It's it's really about bringing together um, the various public agencies and working with private landowners um, and coming up with plans for these forests that help better reflect, um, you know, more of a natural state for those forests. And um, the challenge is that a lot of, um, in a lot of places, we think of it as if we if we kind of set the forest and leave it alone, then it it's good. Um, but actually in a lot of places, because disturbance historically was such an important part of an ecosystem, um, it's really more important to turn these forests back into a mosaic of like, like what we were saying, a diversity of age structures and species, um, because that's really what makes it resilient. So um, a lot of it is working with like federal and state agencies to look at forest management plans and understand what percentage of these forests are young forest, middle age and older forests, and how do we um, keep a healthy balance of all those? Okay, I have a lot of questions. Um, <laughs> I think uh, I'm I'm I wanna I'm gonna put this out there and not go there now, but I want to say it so I don't forget it. I'm gonna come back to disturbance. <laughs> sure. But before we yeah. go to disturbance, I wanna talk about cross agency collaboration uh, because I know that can be complicated, and we, um, the National Wildlife Federation, worked on a project in the Rio Grande area, which is like Southern Colorado, Upper New Mexico, which is where this uh, a bunch of different national forests come together. And of course, each national forest has their own management plan. Um, sure. And and I think any time, like you mentioned, you know, there's private land, there's national forest, there's um, uh, conservation easements, there's state land. Uh, and even though the individual areas might have management plans, getting collaboration across those man-made boundaries um, can be complicated. And I'm curious um, how you've seen that interact when it comes to sure. forests in the, in the East. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're very right. Um, it can be complex. Um, thankfully, uh, we have hired, RGS has hired forest conservation directors who oversee the work in each of the regions um, and I feel so privileged <laughs> to work with the, these guys. Um, they they really work hard to find the best collaborations and the the right folks to work through these issues with. Um, it will always be more slow going with public agencies than private landowners. Um, there's just more stuff to get through, more processes. Um, but when you think about it, you also usually have a bigger footprint. So, you know, it's a bigger investment, but it's also usually a broader impact. Um, and so we, we try to keep that in mind, um, try to be patient with the processes that um, we need to go through. But um, a lot of it is just consistent communication and um, being open to adjusting things based on different priorities. 
Um, I think one of the coolest things that I've been able to dig into and, and understand over the course of the last year since I've been at RGS um, is just how different one project is from another. So um, in thinking about work that we're doing in like Virginia, it's very different than some of the work that we're doing in northern Minnesota, just based on what the priorities are and what the habitat needs to look like and the state of the forest. So um, <laughs> it's it's hard to talk about at a broad scale because a lot of the treatments and the specific needs um, are very localized when it comes to forest management. Oh, that's so interesting. It when you were talking, I was, this is uh, just a, a fun little quiz question that I learned recently. Um, the We had our holiday celebration a while back, and each program bought, brought a, a question. And from the public lands team, the question was, um, all of the public land in the United States, if it were pulled together, has, uh, like, and ranked as far as the country sizes across the globe, where would it fall? Uh, and the answer is uh, 10th. It would be the 10th oh, largest. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Largest country in the yeah. world with all of our public land. Um, That's incredible. Isn't that incredible? I think just to put that that perspective. Yeah. I mean, blew my mind. We're very privileged to have access to that. Um, you know, I think especially for folks who live in areas that um, it's much harder to get access to public lands. Um you know, when I lived in Louisiana, for example, um, if you're down on the coast, you usually have more access to open spaces. But there are a lot of places in the middle part of Louisiana where um, I really had a challenge getting to open spaces that were open to the public. Um, and when you did, you know, you're often um, and I know there are other places in the U.S. where that's the case where overcrowding is an issue. But um public lands in general are just such an incredible opportunity. And um, I really, I'm grateful for living uh, where I do because I'm, I'm usually within about a 30 minute drive of really good public lands. It's amazing. Uh, definitely guided my uh, settle down choice <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Same. <laughs> that was one of the deciding factors for me too. Um, yeah, for sure. I want to go back to disturbance. Uh, and so you talk, I think, I think you're, you said it very well in that um, we tend to think about forest management or have in the past and, and, and it still pervades in some communities um, as an all or nothing when in sure. reality it needs to be uh, both and. And I'm curious when you mentioned disturbance, uh, what that disturbance looked like historically and what that disturbance look looks like for modern forest management. Sure. Yeah. I mean, this is a big topic and I, I often have um, a forest wildlife person with me to, to be able to um, really get into the details on it because they are the pros. Um, but I'll do my best to kind of summarize this. So, you know, historically speaking, our forests evolved over thousands of years with some kind of regular disturbance shaping them, usually fire. Um, but we also know that a lot of Native American communities had regular um, ceremonial burns and smaller fires. And so um, really there, when Europeans settled in North America, um, we did a lot to suppress and eliminate those disturbances. Um, 
There are various other things, historically speaking, that you could point to as disturbances, but, um, you know, like passenger pigeons used to blacken the sky. There were so many of them in a flock. And when they landed on a forest, <laughs> inevitably, you know, there was um, there was bird poop everywhere and um, they fed on things. And so you would see the impacts of those massive flocks of birds. And um, in some cases, we don't see those kinds of flocks of birds or wildlife on the landscape like we did historically. Um, but when, when we talk about disturbance, um, it's mostly related to things like, like fire. Um, and so today many of the disturbance dependent species like rough grouse, um, they aren't doing well because of the sudden change to their preferred habitat. So the, the lack of that disturbance in measured amounts, right? Like I said, the over harvesting is one thing cause it's too much, but now it's that we've got too little disturbance. Um, and so that actually extends to species like golden wing warblers, Kirtland's warblers, um, which some of the birders who are listening might be more familiar with. Um, and I've, <laughs> I've learned a ton about disturbance ecology over the last few years. Um, it's really fascinating. Like I, I wish I could say I was an expert, but I'm, I'm still a student of this and, um, it's fascinating to learn, um, how this relates not just to forests, but also when you think about prairies and prescribed mm -hmm. burns and that sort of thing. Um, and so, yeah, young forests are really important to many wildlife species, um, but they're also important for building a natural resilience within forests to ensure that you've got young trees coming up as certain, um, you know, a lot of tree species have kind of a um, an expiration date that might be between 80 to 150 years. And so you want to make sure that you constantly have this mosaic of different balances of age classes, if that makes sense. Can you talk about, you mentioned that the rough grouse is a, a disturbance dependent species, I think was, was what you said. Um, yeah. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. Yeah. Um, so when we talk about grouse, um, I like to, one of my colleagues, Mike Nadusky, um, once described it as having your bedroom next to your kitchen, next to your bathroom. And so when we think about rough grouse, they kind of need a variety of age classes all close together. And they use those different ages of forest for different things. And so they might use some of the younger forest for things like food availability, um, and some of like the maybe middle-aged, especially like conifers, they might use more for cover, right? So, um, and avoiding predation. And so that's part of the reason that they need a good mix of different habitats is because they use the various parts of the forest for different things. Hmm. That's fascinating. And I, I do, I like that description of the kitchen next to the bathroom next to the bedroom. <laughs> yeah it, it's super uh, relatable I think it, yeah I think it really helps you kind of visualize like why you would need them all close together because grouse don't really go that far um yeah. you know other species are migratory but grouse really stay within a, a very small proximity um throughout their lives so they they do need all of those things in kind of a, a smaller area that's fascinating like if evolutionarily if you think at it through that lens like that's really fascinating that they've 
you know, they've, they've adapted to their environment to be able to, to stay in one place because of the different age classes of the trees. That's really cool. Right. Yeah. And when you lose that, that's when you lose those grouse populations. Yep. Yep. Uh, Ashley Chance, I'm going to check in with you because I have had an experience where a co-host accidentally got disconnected for 20 minutes and I didn't realize it because I was too busy (laughs) asking questions. So are you still there? I haven't been saying that much because Ashley, you have been doing such an amazing job talking about disturbance and its importance, the necessity of it, actually, not just like it's a nice thing to have, like we have to have it. Um, And the way that you described the habitat requirements for rough grouse is spot on. And I would just like to reiterate that that's the case for almost all wildlife. Managing the landscape in a mosaic is the gold standard, no matter what you're talking about. This is a ubiquitous thing everywhere, whether you're talking about prairie, forest, savanna, which would be a mixture of the two. um, You need to have patchiness to provide for everyone basically. And so that means you can even, there's a place for clear cuts, you know, in some specific instances, there's a, there's a place for pretty much everything. And it comes down to a question of scale. So Ashley, like you said, we ran into a big problem when all the European settlers came over and cut everything down. Like that was a problem of scale. Hmm. And these massive wildfires that we're seeing out west, that's a problem of scale, which also relates to fire intensity. But having that mosaic and, you know, historically the fires that you talked about that were set by Native Americans or that were naturally occurring through like late summer lightning storms, um, those were, rel- generally speaking, were relatively low intensity fires that would burn patchily. So it wasn't like you would step out and everything's black. Mm-hmm. It's like your boots, you know, as you walk through it, there'd be, oh, here's a green spot or like the fire didn't really, this trunk kind of protected a little fire shadow here. So I think I just wanted to try to paint that picture for our listeners to try to understand disturbance is not bad um, because my generation, especially, I feel like, you know, growing up in the nineties and early two thousands, it was very earth day, plant a tree. And, you know, Smokey the Bear is the best (laughs) bit of propaganda there ever was. Um, Very effective. So all of that stuff, you know, was talked about and I don't know if I should say fed to us with good intentions, right? Yeah, the people, The people touting those messages really believed it was the right thing at the time. Um, And unfortunately, now we know better. Sometimes it's hard to do better because there's still that the vestige of those old ideas are so ingrained, I think. Yeah. And I mean, in certain cases, if you're talking internationally, those messages are still true in certain places, right? Like when we think about the Amazon and the deforestation. Right, um, right. You know, and I think the biggest challenge that I face as a communicator when talking to folks who are not thinking about forests day in and day out is, like you said, um, they're familiar with the messages of plant a tree, save the planet. And so anytime you try to talk in complex terms about what forests needs are, um, it's confusing and it's, it's new information and it's, it's not always easy to accept, um, that different message from what people are used to hearing. Um, And right now we see with a lot of the climate talks, right, um, these conversations about massive tree planting efforts on a large scale, 
and some of the foremost efforts um, of of those folks are are being, um, you know, they're being looked at by some of the experts in forest wildlife as yes, we need forests on the ground, but we have to be very, we have to be very careful about what we're saying when we're referring to healthy forests. Um, you can't just plant a bunch of trees and walk away um, because it it does take a lot of work to really make sure that a forest is healthy. Yeah, and I think thinking too about where we need forests, right? Like it's not helpful yes. to have forests yeah. everywhere. I think here in Tennessee specifically, I don't know the number, the actual metric, but there is way more forests, way more trees here than there was historically. And when I say historically, I'm talking about like pre-European settlement. Sure. Um, and so the landscape looks very different and by default, wildlife look very different. We used to have woods bison. We used to have elk coast to coast across the nation. And I don't know, I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent here, but I just <laughs> love what you're saying. And I want people to know like, this is the gospel, like this is true. And we we should really be thinking about things in terms of this. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, no, I'm really enjoying this conversation because it's, um, like I said, it can be a challenge um, to kind of a, a larger audience that's not keeping up with the conversation around uh, like disturbance ecology and, and how different landscapes need that. But thankfully, thanks to you, um, we're able to talk about this in a very public manner and hopefully um, folks can start to think about these things in a, in a really educated way. Yeah. Um, we're going to take a quick break to hear from some of our partners. Uh, and when we get back, I have so many more questions for you. We'll be right back. Howdy, Artemis listeners. This is Aaron Kindle from NWF Outdoors. We know you love awesome conservation conversations. That's why we want to invite you to check out the NWF Outdoors podcast, where we dive deep into the issues, people, and places that showcase the best of the sporting conservation lifestyle. Guests include leaders, luminaries, and decision makers who define conservation and work tirelessly for fish and wildlife. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts or at nwfoutdoors.org. Okay, welcome back. Um, so I, I, one of the other things that I wanted to talk with you about, Ashley, is I think uh, when we talk about climate change, uh, particularly when we talk about climate change as it relates to specific ecosystems, I think it's a, it's a two-pronged conversation. Um, and the first conversation is one that we've delved into, right? It's like, uh, what is the state of the habitat? Um, and how is it impacted by climate change um, or exacerbated by climate change? Sure. Um, and so that's one side of the, the conversation. But then I think the other side of the conversation for every ecosystem is how is um, this ecosystem, when it's healthy, a climate solution? Um, and so I would love to talk about healthy forests and how they have the potential to act as climate solutions. Can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, so when we think about how habitats might be changing, I mean, one of the most obvious ones that we talk about is snow cover. Um, birds like grouse really like to roost um, in 
in the snow. And so if you don't have enough snow or the right type of snow, it puts pressure on those birds. Um, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to affect the population, but it does. It is an additional stressor um, when there's not a snowpack that is typical for a certain region. Um, and so, you know, an example of how we might mitigate that is um, by looking at planting more conifers in certain places to kind of act as um, a stand-in for reduced snowpack. Um, where grouse can still go to avoid predation, um, to thermoregulate, things like that. Um, but at a large scale, when we think about um, like broader climate solutions conversations, um, I think it's really important to think about you know tree plantings and forest um, conservation as part of a larger toolbox, right? Like we are not going to tree plant our way out of this problem. Um, but Set some of the, the ways. Perfect. I'll get it printed. Yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. clearly we know that we want our forests to stay forests, right? Like it, development is still a huge threat. Um, but when we talk about our forests, um, it's really important for us to think about how we can integrate the needs of forests and wildlife with what we're trying to achieve um, with certain climate pieces. So, you know, um, for example, um, a lot of states are looking into starting and participating in carbon programs as a way to fund um, their forest management um, and their their forest um, on the landscape. And so um, what we need to do, though, is to ensure that those carbon programs are part of a, a larger forest management plan that really takes wildlife into account and nearby communities um, so that we're not just thinking about what are the carbon benefits of this forest, but also how does our management of those forests impact um, the people and the wildlife that rely on them. Can you talk a little bit about carbon programs um, and, and what you mean by that? I can talk a little bit about it. I, I will admit I'm not the expert in our organization on that front. Um, but essentially, it's a it's a way for um, local and state entities to participate in a program that either pays them or incentivizes them to keep forests on the landscape, um, kind of as an offset for any of the um, carbon pollution. Um, from or emissions from companies or um, I mean usually it's companies but from what I understand that's generally what it is would you guys agree yeah. that yeah yeah <laughs> that's more that's or less my take on it. that's it. my take on yeah. it perfect yeah because we talked in an, uh, in the first episode of the climate series when we were talking about grasslands we were talking about carbon sequestration um, and and carbon sinks and forests, obviously, are a huge place um, for carbon sequestration. And I think, yeah, I'd just like to draw attention to the fact that there are programs that will incentivize keeping the forest intact as a, um, uh, as a climate solution for that carbon sequestration. I think that's interesting. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, and we've, you know, we've had members who are concerned when they see us participate, you know, their state or county participating in carbon programs, worrying that there won't be the balance of forests that they've had nearby. Because people know when they've got high quality habitat <laughs> <laughs> near them. And so there's concern that that's going to change things. 
Um, thankfully, so far from what we've seen, that's not the case. Usually the carbon programs um, fall in step and are used as part of a larger forest management plan. Um, so, so far, it seems to be a, a pretty positive piece. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, again, going back to um, uh, like healthy, healthy habitat and healthy landscapes, um, are more effective natural infrastructure, right? When it comes to yes. um, carbon uh, absorption or water filtration or you name it, like when we're talking about the natural infrastructure that protects us and has been designed to give us what we need, um, healthy habitat does that more effectively. And if you think of the sheer number of um, land uh, that is public land or private land that has um farmland or ranching capacity where we can enhance the health and quality and and thereby just like exponentially increase our ability to provide the natural infrastructure. Um, it's mind-blowing, I think. Yes. If we consider the possibility. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. And you talked about at the beginning, you mentioned that one of the focuses from the Rough Grass Society is is um, habitat restoration on a landscape level. Can you break that down for us and and kind of define what you mean by landscape level? Yeah, so um, over the the last 60 years that Ruffed Grouse Society has been working on these issues, um, you know, for a long time, um, the goal was really to get work on the ground locally And during a time when grouse populations were doing well, that was sufficient. Like that was, that was enough. And um, it engages communities, it brings people together, it gives you hands-on work. So those uh, more local um, kind of smaller projects were really the bread and butter of the organization for a long time. And uh, what we're seeing with the, the decline of grouse and woodcock is that we really we have to think at a large scale because we that is what is needed in order to save these populations. Um, you know, Indiana is a great example of this, where uh, thirty or forty years ago it had a really solid rough grouse population. Um, and over the last thirty, forty years, that population has declined to a great degree. And now rough grouse are a state endangered species in Indiana. Um, And so the time scale (laughs) and the urgency behind this is really, we have to do this at a massive scale. We have to try to affect as many acres as possible because we are running out of time. Um, The situation in Indiana is not isolated to that area. We are seeing that across the landscape. And so if we really want to affect change, we have to do it on a large scale. That is a really good thing to keep in mind and to focus on. Yeah, it's like you said before, it takes a lot more coordination at a high level um, and it takes a lot more patience to some degree to work through some of the issues. Um, But when you can work with national forests or large state forests um, across the landscape, especially in the eastern half of the United States, um, it really does make a difference for these, um, for our wildlife. Ashley Chance, you still there? 
I'm here, and once again, at, she's just saying all the right things, so I don't have a lot to add, I guess. I could give a little context on, like, the landscape-level stuff. You know, we were thinking, talking about grouse and talking about how they don't move very far. An individual grouse lives in kind of a specific area, but populations often require a lot more. One big thing is gene flow, so, like, the ability to to keep, again, we're back to diversity in the gene pool. You have to have grouse in a lot of places or, you know, different species require populations of different sizes. But um, yeah, I don't just to reconcile that, that we have to think big for an animal that really hangs out in a small area. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Because if you want to have a lot of those (laughs) across the landscape, um, you really have to work hard to maintain the forest in all these different spots. Um, So it's yeah, it's a lot of work to come up with the right plans, um, but really worth it over time because once you get a forest kind of on the right trajectory, it's much easier to go in um, and make the improvements that you need without so much heavy lifting. That's true. Yeah. Well, Ashley, in the beginning, Ashley, you mentioned um, about how woodcock are, what did you say they're listed as right now? Species of greatest conservation need. Species of greatest conservation need. I'm not current on all of the tiers, um, but I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Like, that's shocking to me. Can you talk a little bit about why that might be? I know they're a migratory species, so I'm assuming it has something to do with something in part of their range. Yeah, um, so a lot of these are determined by each of the state agencies that looks at, you know, which species are most at risk based on um, habitat needs. And so that is really the case is like the populations have been in decline and we've seen the habitat declining. Um, So when I mentioned Indiana, for example, um, the amount of young forest that is in the state has declined generally by 90% um, since the 80s. And so when you see that kind of decline in habitat and you also see the decline in the population, then that triggers state agencies to start including species like woodcock and grouse in um, kind of their priority tier, right, when it, when it comes to land management. Gotcha. That makes sense. Uh, and I think just sticking with species of of great conservation need um, as a kind of a definition, I think uh, we alluded to it briefly, but I want to dig into it a little bit more um, because we're talking about state agencies uh, who uh, pull together kind of a a statewide perspective on how the variety of species under their purview are doing on the landscape. Um, sure. And and you know obviously there's the endangered species list um, that has dedicated right. resources um, and policies and procedures uh, for for addressing and protecting. But then there's the species of greatest conservation need, um, which is really just kind of like a you know heads up everybody we need to pay attention to this right now. Right. Um, and one of the struggles that species um, like that face, and I'm curious how this how this um, pertains to the woodcock because it is a game species. And typically um, there's, uh, you know, state agencies who who get a lot of funding from hunting and fishing 
sales. And so a lot of the work that they do is managing game species um, and managing conservation for game species for obvious reasons. Uh, some species who don't fall under that definition um, have struggle for funding. And I'm, sure. and I'm curious yep. if you can speak to that a little bit with uh, the woodcock. You know, I have um, some stuff in front of me that I pulled up that kind of talks a little bit more in depth about it. But with um, grouse and woodcock, um, each state is kind of different in what they're seeing. And so it kind of depends on which state you're talking about in terms of like why they're listed. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's kind of difficult at a broad level to to say one specific reason because different areas have different issues. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I guess one last point I want to make is, um, you know, we've talked a lot about uh, over the course of the year on this podcast, and, and we've talked about it in the series that of about climate specifically, but the need to look at funding for conservation and how we, yeah. how we manage um, and what our sources for that conservation funding are. And I think when it comes to uh, species like uh, species that are on the critical concern list, we need more funding for that. And one area where we're working towards that is the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. Um, and I think it would probably be best if we focused on that in another podcast altogether. <laughs> but I want to throw that out as, as, uh, as a potentially helpful act for addressing um, the, the problem of funding for yeah. non-game species. Absolutely. Um, one of, so I just recently got done with a master of public affairs, but I'm, I'm focused on, um, conservation and one of the biggest challenges, right. That we face at the state level is that, that funding for wildlife, um, because a lot of the hunting license fees are in decline. And so uh, we've got a gap in funding that traditionally um, was filled by hunters. But when you look at the general population of the U.S., it's going up much, much faster. Um, and you've got this kind of steady decline of people who are buying hunting licenses. And so that's a real challenge because usually it's the state agencies that get a lot of that funding to then um, have federal match to that. And so... Um, something like restoring America's Wildlife Act um, is really, um, it's really important. Yeah. That is a, a good segue into what are some other policies and projects that are currently in the works that you're excited for? Sure. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how much time we have left, um, but I've got um, two projects in particular that I want to highlight um, because I think they're really indicative of what we're trying to do across the country. Um, one of them is a project we're doing in Virginia and uh, we're focused on 35,000 acres of public lands um, and it's across a few different types of state landscapes. Um, and basically what we're doing is trying to come up with a conservation plan that looks at um, a couple different scenarios. So for example, if we were to try to manage a forest to maximize the amount of carbon that it can store, what would that look like? And then look at the forest for if we were trying to maximize the amount of wildlife that that forest could sustain, what would that look like? And basically comparing those two plans and trying to come up with 
um, a win-win situation so that we're storing as much carbon as possible while also um, benefiting as many wildlife species as possible. Um, so I'm really excited for that project to get off the ground and for us to start working on that because I think um, it's the type of thing we're going to be needing to do across the landscape moving forward. I, I really like that attentional approach. Yeah. Um, and the other cool thing about it is that there's a monitoring piece of it. Um, and some of the monitoring is going to happen with something we call ARUs, which are autonomous recording units. Um, and I don't know about you, but I feel like that would just be full of the kind of recordings that I could just play at night to fall asleep. Like, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> just listen to the wildlife in the woods. Um, but they're going to use those ARUs and traditional also um, point counts to monitor and understand what the wildlife look in some of these areas that we're managing for specific purposes. Um, so I, that's, that's a really cool project we've got going on in Virginia. Um, and then we have also another really exciting project is the Moose Habitat Collaborative in northern Minnesota. Um, and we're working with a lot of different groups to benefit not just rough grouse, but also moose, uh, whippoorwill, spruce grouse, um, and prescribed burns will be a really big key aspect of that work. Um, we're working with the Minnesota DNR, Superior National Forest. Nature Conservancy. We're also garnering input from local tribal communities and from several local agencies. So um, that's going to be a really cool project that people can keep an eye out for updates on. Um, and I'm I'm really excited to write up reports as we get some results coming in. I love that that you're really excited to write up reports. That's fantastic. <laughs> Well, I get to do the fun stuff where I get to say what the impacts are and nice. what it looks like and how things have improved. You know, um, our forest conservation directors are the ones that have to fill out the uh, the more tedious uh, yeah. quarterly reports. <laughs> yeah. That's fun. Um, can you tell us where our listeners can can find more information and follow the Rough Grouse Society and Wilcox Society? Yeah, they can visit our website at roughgrousesociety.org. Um, we are also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Um, so any of those areas you can um, you can go to to get more information. Um, our website really houses most of our stuff, um, but I try to keep our social media accounts updated fairly often um, with updates about the work we're doing. Fantastic. Uh, Ashley Chance, any burning questions? No, I mean, I, this is just is amazing. It's all great. <laughs> uh, Ashley Peters, is there anything else you wanted to be sure to mention? I guess uh, the last thing I'll just say is um, that I really hope that folks do a little bit of digging, like I said earlier, on forest conservation issues. Um, it is sometimes complicated, but it's also really fascinating. And so... Um, you know, if anybody is wanting to nerd out <laughs> on some of the stuff, they're more than welcome to reach out to me. And um, if I don't have the answers myself, I am really well connected and can connect them to folks who probably have the answers. So um, more than happy to provide information to folks as they're curious. And of course, if they have questions about getting into grouse hunting, I am also available <laughs> to answer questions about that. And if you want to nerd out about how to get involved in the forest management planning, 
<laughs> I would love to nerd out on that. Like, like, yeah, the agency process and as an advocate, getting involved in the agency process is always um, uh, complicated, but rewarding. Uh, Worthwhile too. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. <laughs> Yay, nerds. Um, <laughs> uh, final question. As someone who works uh, in conservation every day and faces the effects and challenges of climate change head on, where do you find hope? Yeah, that's a good question. I I would say don't spend too much time on social media. Um, <laughs> there are, Words to live there by are, right there. <laughs> that's the back of the t-shirt. <laughs> there there are some hopeful corners of social media but i've really had to um uh curate my algorithm to keep it positive um the the number one thing that gives me hope is just talking having conversations like this one um meeting folks in person as often as i can you know having phone calls with other conservation nerds um really like the the people in the conservation community are where i get my hope um, as well as, of course, going out into the woods and um, just really disconnecting from the day-to-day -day and remembering that the work that I'm doing is having an impact on the ground. I think it's easy to forget that, especially if you have a job like mine where I'm in front of the computer so often. So um, I'd say really it's it's the people and, of course, being on the landscape and experiencing the benefits of public lands. Ashley, thank you so much for this great conversation. Um, I learned a lot about disturbance and uh, I'm just grateful for your knowledge and your time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful to be part of this conversation and I hope we can do it again sometime. Absolutely. Um, I think we can have a regular nerd fest. Awesome, <laughs> just, yes. Like, <laughs> right next to Grouse Miss, we'll just yeah. make it an annual thing. Let's not forget about Grouse Miss. <laughs> I love it. Um, to our listeners, thank you so much for listening. Again, I want to encourage everybody to check out The Hunters and Anglers Guide to Climate Change, which was recently published by NWF Outdoors. Among many things, this guide does discuss the important role climate-informed reforestation and restoration of our forests play in, um, in climate solutions. You can find that, again, at uh, artemis.nwf.org. Thank you for joining us this week on the Artemis Podcast. As always, until next time, be bold, stay curious, and get outside. Mm -hmm.